Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Saturday, September the 9th, 2023. Looks like we're in fall, first real fall weekend which is of course marked by the beginning of the national football league which marks the beginning of uh, america's obsession with american football and 49ers my local team are playing uh, pittsburgh steelers tomorrow meanwhile america's other sporting obsession um or one of its other sporting obsessions basketball continues lots of headlines about uh, the end of the Team USA's gold medal run in the FIBA World Cup. Uh, lots of headlines still on the imminent start of the 2023-24 season, which begins amazingly enough uh, next month on October the 24th. Lots of talk, I'm sure, about how it's going to be a great season, but it's unlikely that the 23-24 NBA season will compete with one from almost 40 years ago, from uh, 1987-88, a season that, at least according to my guest today, Rich Cohen, who is a columnist at the Wall Street Journal, an authority, much much read author on American sports, um, uh, was the greatest of all NBA seasons. He has a new book out, When the Game Was War, and Rich is joining us from Ridgefield, Connecticut. Uh, Rich, congratulations on the new book. That's a rather bold statement. Um, <laughs> the NBA's greatest season. Don't just blame it on an editor. Make your argument. Why was it the NBA's greatest season? Well, I wouldn't blame it on an editor. It was me, not him. I came up with it, and uh, I came up with the title and everything. So if it's flawed, it's only my fault. And, well, I'm um, sure it's not flawed, at least in your mind. Yeah. So, so tell us why... The 87-88 season, and I was just talking to my wife, who's a real basketball expert, I have to admit I'm not, who uh, I asked her, what the, what was the best season in the whole history of basketball? And she's she's about your age, and, and she talked about the late 80s. And then I said, 87-88, and she said, yeah, so you've got one reader there, one person in agreement. Well, I think it's the, you can objectively say it's sort of the golden age of the NBA. It's when the NBA first sort of passed football in a way which had passed baseball to become the national game. You know, there's a famous thing that, that said, if you want to understand America, you have to understand baseball. I forgot who said that, but it's not really true anymore. In fact, if you understand baseball, you'll understand just about nothing. And I say that as a, as a baseball fan. So um, that was like, the, I can look at baseball and say the golden age of baseball was probably the early sixties. And you had Mickey Mantle and, Duke Snyder and Willie Mays all playing center field and outfield in New York. And I think you can objectively look at that era, the late 80s, early 90s, and say you had these four great dynasties. That's why I focused it on it. That were all sports dynasties, all competing at the same time. You had the Boston Celtics who had Larry Bird. You had the Chicago Bulls with Michael Jordan, the L.A. Lakers with Magic Johnson, and the Detroit Pistons with the much undervalued and derided Isaiah Thomas, known affectionately by his fans as Zeke. So um, the reason why I picked that particular season, because you could say those two or three seasons, one is because it was such an intense playoffs 
and it set the stage for so much that was to follow. The Lakers, every game, every playoff round they had that year, except the first round, went seven games and seemed up for grabs till the end. And the other is because that's kind of personally, because all this is always personal, when I fell in love with the NBA, because it was, I'm a Bulls fan, I'm from Chicago, but I was watching the NBA Finals with my father, who's an old basketball coach, and the Pistons were trying to close out the Lakers, which would have been a huge upset. The Lakers are trying to repeat as champions. And Isaiah Thomas, who's, you know, the, the focal point of the Pistons, rolled his ankle in the third quarter of that game. It looked like he broke his ankle. I mean, he was standing on his ankle. It was, it was hard to watch. And you thought, that's it. I won't see him again until next year. Um, and they carried him to the bench, and people were working on him. And he came back out. And there was something about, it's part of when the game was war, watching people play through pain. That's incredibly inspiring to us civilians. And he came out and he had probably the best single quarter in NBA playoff history. He scored 25 points virtually standing on one leg. And um, he was hitting baskets from everywhere. I mean, he was hitting baskets, it seemed like, from the locker room, from the stands, from the parking lot. I mean, everywhere he put up the ball, it went in. And it just was such an exciting moment. It, it made me an NBA fan. And so to me personally, that's the best season. But I also think it's the season where objectively you also had the most future hall of famers playing at any one time in the league including the very old Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was 40 and would play had played with guys who played before there was an NBA and the very young Reggie Miller and Scottie Pippen who played with guys who are basically still playing so you can almost say that's almost the dead center it's like the Kansas City is the United States that season is to the history of the NBA Rich, uh, as an interesting argument, you, you, you said at the beginning, if you want to understand America, you need to understand basketball. Uh, remind us what America was like back in 1988. When I, when I looked at the title of your book, When the Game Was War, back then, in a sense, perhaps war was, and I know this is not a book about war, it's about basketball, but war was a kind of game in America. This was before all the various catastrophes in Iraq and, and, and Afghanistan. What does your book say about the America of 1988? Well, I think one of the things that's changed, you mentioned at the beginning, United, uh, the USA basketball team losing at the World you know, Cup. And the idea is we should never lose basketball in basketball because it's our game. But all these sports have become international and the markets become one giant global market which I think you could say that started probably with NAFTA. And uh, so it's there's an evening out, what I guess Tom Friedman called flattening. So uh, you have this talent coming from everywhere. But in 1987, 88, it was still very regional markets. And it wasn't just that the United States was just the sole king of basketball. It was that each city that I write about had a very localized market in that it had their own TV shows, their own radio shows, their own, own Good Morning America, their own late night show, a healthy market of their own newspapers with very intense involvement by the fans. And there wasn't a lot of highlights or a lot of ways to watch these games. So you had to watch these games live, which was a communal experience. And you waited all day for the game. And you just if you missed it, you missed it. And then you spent days before the next game reading, reading, reading. So you had a lot of fans from each city very involved with the team who were readers and they were sort of reading intensely about these teams and these matches and it caused this bond between the teams and the players and you really saw this kind of each team seemed to represent its city so just two two examples the two best ones maybe 
the Pistons were really the, the reason I called the game was war. They were a very violent team. They did things that are not legal anymore. They tried to beat teams into submission. And uh, they were really kind of melded with the working class, tough ethos of Detroit, which had come through this problem with the Japanese car, taking away the Detroit auto industries. That was all in that team. And then you had the Lakers, who they played in the finals, who were called Showtime and were Hollywood. You went to the Lakers games, uh, you know, Barbara Streisand and Jack Nicholson were at the Lakers games. Bob Seeger, I don't know if you know Bob Seeger, but Bob Seeger. I don't know him personally, I know who he is. Yeah, but he was at all the Pistons games. So So it was when Los Angeles really was Los Angeles. And then throw in two other great sporting cities, uh, Chicago and Boston, and you really have an amazing quartet. And also with the Celtics, like the rap on Boston is that there, it was a very white city and it was kind of a racist, racist city. And the, the Boston Celtics were a white, a largely white team. I mean, they were not a completely white team, but they're, they had three white starters who were stars, which was unusual. And so it came to stand for people hated the Celtics because of that. Now, the joke these is guys were really white. I mean, Larry Bird is about as white as you can get. Right. Right. And if you remember the movie, which came out in the same era, do the right thing, the Spike Lee movie, famously a Knicks fan, just a guy shows up wearing a Larry Bird jersey in Brooklyn and he almost gets killed for it. You know, that's like a scene in the movie. So the the, the irony is, or the joke is that the Celtics were the first team to integrate and the first team to have an all black lineup in the NBA and the first team with the first great NBA black coach, which was Bill Russell, who's arguably the best player in history. So but people don't know history. They just focused on what that team was at that time. So, and then the Bulls were kind of very young and kind of booming and the future belonged to them. And that was the feeling in Chicago at the time. It was a real age of Renaissance in Chicago, which had a tough seventies, you know, with mayor Jane Byrne, that was the mayor when I was a kid and, and the giant blizzards and the, there's a lot of bad things. Yeah, and I mean, even going back to 68 and the riots there. Right. Um, we all the whole seventies was like a hangover from sixty eight and Boston and as well that. with the with the busing riots and the the different yeah. kinds of racial animosity. Uh, so it was an interesting, a very different America. Going back to to, to six uh, to to two eighty seven eighty eight, um, Rich, if you were to ask um, a well educated, unbiased basketball supporters uh, follower who didn't have any particular bias what 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 was america's team back then was there one historically what was the, the greatest dynasty what was was it the Celtics? Well, if you're in sport uh, that's why it was so great because you couldn't i listen i interviewed over 100 people for this book i interviewed a lot of old players and old coaches and i asked each of them who was the best team of all time or who is, and almost all of them, now they're older people by definition, because they were around then. They all mentioned this era. And they each one of these teams got multiple mentions. That's why it was so great. Because you can't, a lot of people would say the greatest dynasty was the Celtics a couple of years before when they won the championship. And they had Bill Walton, who's a Hall of Fame player, was still healthy and playing. And what's great about the Celtics is the kind of basketball you don't see anymore. They passed. I'd say they were drunk on passing. So one of the really fun things about watching the Celtics is they would work their way down the court, almost not dribbling, just passing their way up the floor. 
and they would get the open shot and somebody would not take it. They would pass it again. They'd always do another pass. It was like Lanya, one thrown in just for free, um, just because it was beautiful and it was fun. And the self and the Lakers played that way too, except they played that way very fast, you know, and, and Magic Johnson had that unbelievable ability to never telegraph where he was going. And when the ball got into the hands of a forward, even the forward would seem sort of surprised to get it. So I don't think you can pick one great team. If you had to say the whole era, eventually it was the Bulls. But there was Um, no uh, comparing it to, to baseball there. There is no equivalent of the Yankees in no American. I mean, the, 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 the Lakers wanted to, the, the Lakers went back, the Yankees, I forget the number, the era I was talking about in the sixties, it came to an end in the seventies. They won, they were in like 12 world series in a row. The team that was like that in basketball was the Celtics with Bill Russell. But in this era, there was this incredible parody of great teams. So the Celtics won back to back and, and they had to beat the 76ers who you could argue, arguably put in this list too with Dr. J, but I didn't because it's another era and they weren't really part another, of this another era. Another era, another, another book. What about the business side? You mentioned these were still pretty local markets, television markets, newspaper markets. How big a business was the NBA back in 87? Well, it was getting bigger. You know, it, start, it, was, it was the NBA had a bad period where their games, just a few years before their playoff games were not even shown live on television. They were, you had to watch a tape delay because they didn't have a big enough audience. And there was even a threat at one point they were going to lose their network sponsor and then just be on local TV. And the teams were worth probably one fiftieth of what they're worth now. They had different arenas that were smaller and a great example. And then that started to change when Larry Bird and Magic Johnson came in and they had this great rivalry and they were great players. And then Michael, Michael Jordan did for basketball, like what Elvis did for rock and roll. I mean, he just took it up. He was so charismatic. You couldn't take your eyes off of him that people that were not basketball fans were watching Michael Jordan. So then the business became huge. And this is right where that starts because Jordan won the MVP that year, but his teams weren't very good. They were just starting to put the pieces in place. So to me, the best example of where they were financially then compared to now is a big advantage for the Pistons that season. They were the only team in the NBA that had their own plane. Okay, these te- all these guys flew commercial. And most so you, of could, them- you, you might get on a plane with Magic Johnson or, or Larry Bird. Yeah, and the, and the players who weren't the stars <laughs> flew coach. And some of them were seven feet tall. I mean, can you imagine being seven feet tall and sitting in coach in an American airline? I can't even imagine and, being five feet tall, Rich, and sitting in coach, let alone right. seven feet. Huh. And they played night games, so they couldn't get the flight out because the last flight had gone out, and these were often small cities. <laughs> they were smaller cities they were going to. So they had a rule in the NBA, which is you had to take the first flight in the morning of the game. So these guys would have to wake up, you know, at five in the morning to get to the airport to take a six. Were they allowed flight. to get cabs or did they have to walk to the airport? No, they had they had travel arranged. They had like a bus that would take them to the airport. So they had a bus. Be- they couldn't even get a cab. No, I guess if you're late, there's stories about guys showing up late and showing up in a car being driven by a friend. But the, the thing is, like, it was a huge advantage for the Pistons because what the Pistons would do is with their own plane because their owner had money and wanted them to buy them a plane. They would finish the game and do the normal thing. What they do now, they would leave right after the game. They go right to the airport. So they'd wake up in a hotel in the next city and sleep in. 
So they get an extra, you know, two or three hours of sleep than anybody having to go the normal way. And were they way. pretty wild? I mean, there are lots of stories of uh, uh, after hours activity amongst, um, I'm not sure in your book, but generally about the fun these guys had off the court. Was, was yes. that a fairly well, liberal, permissive age? This was the tail end of sort of the cocaine era in the NBA. And it was like a serious, there was a serious, serious drug problem in the NBA. And when guys like Michael Jordan and Charles Oakley came to the NBA and they were very clean as far as that stuff goes, they had a they had like a lot of peer pressure on them like you're in school, you know, and they sort of walled themselves off from what was going on in the team. And ultimately, the Bulls, I mean, the Bulls had a lot of draft picks that looked really bad. The problem is the guys they drafted, like there was a guy when I was a kid, Quentin Daly, who was a great, great player, but he had a lot of problems. And one was he was a drug addict and as a fan, you didn't really know. We heard rumors, but you're like, why isn't this guy working out? Why'd they get this guy so wrong? And one of the most vivid things in my life is the coach, finally exacerbated by Quentin Daly, who probably physically talented-wise was right up there with Jordan or any of them, pulled him out of the game because he was just loping around the court and sitting on the bench, the Bulls team bench, he sent a kid out to get him, I think, a Coke and two pieces of pizza, which he ate on the bench during the game. And they traded him by the next morning. That was a typical Chicago sporting image from my childhood. Yeah, it, ma it makes me think that maybe uh, your book, which is called uh, When the Game Was War, might have also been called When the Game Was Fun. Uh, yeah. The NBA's well, greatest season. Well, fun for season. the players. Call it fun for the fun, players. Well, it was fun for everyone. Um, we're going to take yeah, a oh, yeah. short break now, Rich. And then um, we're going to be back. We'll get more into the season. But it's a fascinating conversation with Rich Cohen, the author of When the Game Was War. I just want to thank our sponsors, Liberties. Uh, Quarterly Journal of Culture and Politics, an excellent new publication. Essential, all our guests, including Rich, will get uh, free annual subscriptions. Um, we're going to run a short ad for Liberties, and then we'll be back with Rich Cohen, the author of When the Game Was War. Hmm. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can find more about Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are with the great Rich Cohen, When the Game Was War, the author of a new book there. NBA's greatest season, Rich. Uh, my wife just reminded me of another character around of those days, Dennis Rodman. Does he oh, yeah. somehow capture the spirit of that season? Yeah, but Rodman's great because he tells you, you know, we have we are so st so statistically based now in sports. So every it's like the finance guys got into the sports and gave everything a number and run it through a computer, and that's how they pick players. And of course, if you ever watch sports or if you played sports or have kids who play sports, you know that those numbers, they're, they're wrong half the time because they can't measure the most important things, which is who's going to still be hustling when you're down by 20 points. You know, there's no st real statistic for that. So um, Rodman is a great example because Rodman never even played high school basketball, really. He was short uh, and he went out and he played. His sisters were great basketball players. He played outside of Dallas in a local playground. And after high school, he grew in one year like a foot, 
which means if you put your head to his bedroom door, you could probably hear him growing. I mean, a foot in a year is like a lot of growth. So suddenly he was this kid who developed a way to play against players much taller than him and developed all these skills and all this grit and toughness and resilience playing in playgrounds. But now instead of, you know, five foot 10, he was six foot 10. And he was completely off the radar because he played in a little community college. He was old uh, for a guy coming into the NBA because he, for a few years, he didn't do anything. He worked at a, he worked at the airport in Dallas. He got in trouble for stealing watches from a store. And I mean, his life's kind of a mess, you know, and his father, his father had like 20 kids with different women. His father's name is actually Philander Rodman, which is like Thomas Pynchon wouldn't be so ballsy to come up with a name like that. Yeah. And, um, and Speaking of boziness, right? Yeah, yeah. They um, ultimately they came up with he he played in these tournaments because people who coached him knew how good he'd become. He played in these tournaments and he was like dominant in the one tournament uh, against players who were you know Division One, highly rated. So suddenly he appeared on everybody's radar. Like, who is this kid? And then he disappeared from the tournaments. So the Philadelphia, uh, the Pistons manager, uh, general manager was like a genius. He uh, sent somebody out and said, go find out what happened to that guy. Like, why was he good and why did he sort of disappear? And they came back and they said, uh, he has asthma and it's never been treated. He has no inhaler. He has no medication. So he was really good at the Portsmouth tournament because it was still winter. But now we're in the spring and everything's blooming and he can't breathe. He can't play for more than two minutes without sitting down because he can't breathe. So. They knew, okay. So what they did is they, they had two, dra two draft picks. The first one, they picked John Sally, who's a borderline Hall of Famer. Not quite. And they used the second pick much lower to pick Rodman, even though they had Rodman rated much higher because they knew they can get him for virtually nothing, and they brought him to an allergist. And within a year or two, he starts completely changing the Pistons, and he becomes like their secret weapon which is he was a devastating defender. And before he dyed his hair and did all the piercings and all that, he was just this very strange, very insecure, but intensely great, great basketball player. And that's like me as a Bulls fan, like everyone hated the Pistons, but I would watch Rodman and I'd go, that guy is so interesting the way he plays basketball, which is he focused on rebounds. And rebounds are kind of the unglamorous part of basketball. Now, even less so because of the three-point shot. But to get a rebound, you have to fight. It's like a mosh pit. Those guys would fight for the ball. And Rodman turned rebounding into an art. And, of course, rebounding, as all these general managers knew, that was the key to the whole game. Because if you get the ball back, that means if you get the ball twice as many times, you only have to make half as many shots. So a good rebounding team can make up for a lot of offensive deficits. And so to me, like, you don't see guys. It's very hard to find guys now that are. Yeah, I want to go back, Rich. Well, the only way we can go back is, is by reading your book. And I particularly want to go back <laughs> because of um, uh, Thomas, Isaiah Thomas. You've given me a real uh, appetite to understand this guy. I mean, the subtitle, uh, the, the book is called When the Game Was War. You talked about Rodman as, 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 as playing the game as if it was war. But Thomas seems to capture the spirit of warfare more than anyone else in the book, doesn't he? And this is well, I, I Isaiah Thomas is from Chicago, and so I saw him when he played in high school. My father, I said, was a basketball coach and he used to take us to see high school tournaments, and you, he was just a superstar. And the key thing to know about Isaiah as a professional is that he was relatively short. They make a list of the top 50 players of all time, he's the only player on that list 
who's under six feet tall. He's about 5'10", five, 5'11", five, depending who's giving you the Which answer. Which is ridiculously short for a basketball player, isn't it? Definitely. And, like, basically, as I was, again, told by my father, there are many mediocre seven-foot basketball players in the NBA. There is not a single player under six feet tall who isn't great. You have to be better when you're shorter in, ba in basketball. Where did your and, father, uh, by the way, where did your father coach? Uh, he coached in Brooklyn when he grew up. And then he had this great experience, which I wrote about in my last book, where he coached a team in the Army in Europe during the Korean War. And he coached a lot of Division I college basketball players who, um, you know, wound up playing in the NBA. And he took that team to the All-European Championship, which was like a really good league. And he won two championships in that league, I think. And then he went back and he coached in Brooklyn. And then at some point, he always, I always figured he would have been a basketball coach, but he, basketball coaches then made nothing. They made nothing. And he felt like he had to make money. So he wrote this book, You Can Negotiate Anything, and worked for the State Department and stuff. But everything he learned about negotiation, I think he learned while playing basketball. And one of his key things, which is why he loved the Pistons, is basketball is all about pace and rhythm. And you can have a great team like the Lakers, but if you upset their rhythm, they will start making mistakes. And once they start making mistakes, they will get frustrated and they will completely come out of their game. And then they're playing your game and you win your game. And that's what the Pistons did. And they did it to the Lakers. They did it to Bulls. They did it to everybody. They would slow would the Thomas game down. would Thomas get into people's heads? Was he that type of player? Not really. I mean, he wasn't so much. Like the famous trash talkers are Larry Bird, Michael Jordan, which is always a surprise. Because it's like they had their public image was kind of squeaky clean. Michael Jordan was virtually a Disney character. And you didn't really know that he was really this ruthless, ruthless competitor. And you didn't figure that out unless you talked to other players and saw the way he acted after he retired. Isaiah Thomas would say, never tried to give a public image and would say things that really pissed people off. But it was the team, really. So that team had Bill Lambeer. Who's he's the story of Bill Lambert? He's the only guy whose father made more than him. His father was like the CEO <laughs> of a, a Fortune 500 company. He was Lambert's like almost seven feet tall, and he was dirty player. I mean, he would, you know, that one of the things the Lakers did to inspire them was Pat Riley, who was the coach of the Lakers, put together this highlight reel, not of the Pistons beating them or doing, you know, bad fouls with the ball, of them doing little things outside the ref's purview. And off the play, like elbowing Magic Johnson in the ribs as he ran down the court or kicking somebody in the back of the leg or stepping on someone's foot, you know, or standing beneath them. So when they came down after taking a shot, they would land on them and roll their ankle. And people felt that he was trying to injure them, that he here was somebody actually trying to injure them. And they had players like that. And Rick Mahorn, who, you know, these guys were very rough players and. Now there's a, de there's a, there's a, you know, they say character's destiny, basically. And there was a key moment when it seemed like the Pistons in game six, the game I talked about, where Isaiah hurt his ankle. The Pistons had basically won that game. And right at the end of the game, they called Lambeer for committing a foul on Kareem Abdul-Jabbar with virtually no time left on the clock. And it put a Kareem on the line to win the game with free throws, which he did. If the Pistons had won that game, they would have won the championship. And then they would have won three in a row. And they'd be known as the greatest team of all, of one of the greatest teams of all time. 
And Lambeer went crazy because he said there was no foul. There was no foul. It was a phantom foul. And if you go back and you watch it, there was no foul. He didn't touch Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. But uh, Lambeer had such bad history and such animosity towards him that when Kareem sort of acted like he'd been fouled, he got the benefit of the doubt. So in a weird way, you think that was unfair, but it was also a result of all the previous bad acts coming back to bite you. You mentioned Rodman, of course, who didn't go to college. Bird uh, did, uh, and so did Magic Johnson. They were bringing their college rivalries into the game. How did this shape the season in terms of college basketball? Was it much stronger back then than it is today? Well, so first of all, Rodman did go to college, but he went to this sort of lower division off the radar. He went when he was old. He wasn't a rookie until he was 25 years old. Um, Bird went to Indiana State, which is, you know, the, the basketball school in Indiana. It's Indiana University. That's where Isaiah went. And uh, Magic went and uh, and Magic went to Michigan State. So the college game was very strong now, I think, because mostly, not these guys, Bird, mostly guys would go to college for four years and they'd play as part of a system and part of a team. And now there's such superstars that they kind of get to play however they want. And a lot of them only go for one year and then go directly into the NBA. So you had players that were really coached and taught to play the game. And a good example of that is Michael Jordan, who went to the University of North Carolina and uh, with a famous, famous basketball coach, Dean Smith. And he played on a team with James Worthy, who's in the Hall of Fame, who was then one of the best players in the Lakers, and Sam Perkins, who was another player who was a great all-star, all-pro NBA player from Brooklyn. And um, the coach made Jordan play in a system, meaning like, he couldn't do all the stuff that we know him for. He couldn't take the ball inside and do a, you know, 360 degree turn dunk. It wasn't allowed. You were part of a team and you disappeared into the team. That meant two things. It meant one, he was underrated coming out of college because people just didn't know how talented he was. And they didn't know until he started playing in the, for the Olympic team the summer after college. And two, it meant that he really knew how to play team basketball and he knew all facets of the game because he had been coached. He was thought of going pro after his sophomore year. And Dean Smith said to him, stay one more year and I will teach you how to play defense. And then after the next year, he said, okay, now you know how to play defense. I, there's nothing more I could teach you. And he went pro and he finished his college degree later. The point is, if you're really into Jordan and watched him, he's famous for his offense, but he was also one of the best, if not the best defender in the league. So when they had somebody to shut down, he would shut them down. And uh, that's the college system that used to exist, where you got these more mature players. But now the, the pull is so strong to go into the NBA so early that you just don't you get these guys sort of finishing their basketball education, you know, in, in the NBA when they're making millions and millions of dollars. And it's just a, a different, different system. And Larry Bird went back and finished his fourth year of college. He's basically like a you know, an old college senior where he took this team that wasn't very good to the NCAA title. And he played against Magic Johnson, who was a sophomore at Michigan State. And that game, Bird versus, uh, versus Magic Johnson in the NCAA final was like the most watched basketball game of history. And they, that audience that they built against each other in college, they carried directly to the NBA where they went to two of the most historic winningest franchises in history the Celtics and the Lakers. 
We are talking with um, Rich Cohen, new book, When the Game Was War, uh, the NBA's greatest season. I don't think I've ever met or talked to anyone who knows more about anything than Rich. Uh, it's quite, a, <laughs> quite an experience, Rich. Do you ever sleep? Uh, I sleep. Uh, not as much as I'd like but to. Do you I dream about, kids. I bet you dream about magic and Jordan and all these people. Yeah, well, see, it's really cool to me because I always like writing about sports because I was a history major in college. And I feel like American sports is American history just told a different way. And right. it's, a, it's a smaller world. It's not an infinite world. You can learn it in depth. And one of the things that really got me excited about this book is as a kid, watching as a kid, I really didn't. I liked the Pistons. I admired them. But I also hated them because they're Well, you're from Chicago, was, and that's the traditional yeah. rivalry. And they would, they would, it wasn't just that they beat the bear, uh, beat the bulls, they beat them up physically. So they had a thing called the Jordan rules. And the Jordan rules was basically in a nutshell, if Michael Jordan takes the ball inside towards the basket, he gets knocked on the floor and he gets knocked on the floor hard. Okay. So by the time you get to the clutch, when they're going to turn to Jordan to win the game, he's going to be so beat up. He's not going to be able to score the winning basket. That was basically the strategy. And they had these players like Rodman and Lambeer and Rick Mahorn, who seemed like very violent players. And when you start looking at it, you're like, why were they that way? You know, and the reason why they were that way, you realize, is because they had one team to beat to get to the finals. They had to beat the Celtics. And the Celtics played that way. The Celtics were had the biggest front line in basketball. They were tough and they were violent. And they became the way they became. They built up like that to get past the Celtics. And I felt like that's exactly what I was learning in college, which is why was the United States after World War II, why didn't we disarm? Why did we become the most heavily armed society in history? Because we had this opponent in the Soviet Union, and whatever the reason, we were building up uh, to defeat them. And I realized that history and the history in sports, they work the same way, which is yeah, the, interesting built thinking about America as the Detroit Pistons. Yeah. If there was the greatest <laughs> game in this greatest season, uh, uh, Rich, I know you think uh, it may have occurred on February the 21st, 1988, a, a game between the Pistons and the Lakers. Tell us about this game. Why is it so important? Well, that was the, the Pistons surprised everybody by coming out and thoroughly beating the Lakers at home. Uh, and the Pistons were interesting because Isaiah Thomas could score 35 points a night and be remembered as a great scorer. He realized early in his career, he said by studying Bird, that to make his team great, he had to subsume his talent. He had to subliminate his own desires and sort of make the team a balanced attack. So that team had not a single player that scored over 20 points a night. It was spread out through the whole lineup, which made them incredibly hard to defend. But when fans looked at it, they said, who do the Pistons have? They don't have anybody that scores 20 points a night. They don't have any superstars. Of course, they were kind of all superstars. So they shocked the Lakers by coming out and drubbing them and then playing them very close. And suddenly, to me, it's like I, I grew up in an era where my favorite movie as a kid was Rocky. And in Rocky, Rocky comes out and knocks Apollo Creed down in the first round. And it's a big, big shock. You know, the, you realize, okay, it's going to be actually a fight. And that's what you realize after the first game. And the Pistons basically beat the Lakers, which would have been one of the greatest upsets in sports history. They went out to L.A. to finish them off, this incredibly tight game, where then Isaiah had this otherworldly third quarter where he put that team on his back and he just turned it on. 
and you, it was magical. It really was. And then they lost anyway. They lost because of this phantom foul where their own history of bad acts. This is the Lambeer foul them. at the end. Yeah. And it was like, as a sports fan, I mean, I think sport, I watch, I still very into sports. And sometimes I watch a very long game into overtime and my team loses. And I'm like, what other activity would a person spend their entire night or go to the game and spend hundreds of dollars and sit through this whole thing? And there's a chance that at the end of the movie, a big pie is going to come out of the screen and hit you in the face. I mean, why would you invest so much time and the outcome could be so awful, you know? And the reason is because it kind of mirrors what it's what life, you know? It's sort of like this idea that you think it's as a Chicago fan, Chicago had a lot of bad teams when I was a kid. You felt like, yeah, that's what it's like, man. And that's why you think every year is kind of disappointing. But when the Bulls finally win, it's so exhilarating because we've been through losing our entire lives. And it's like you worked for it, even though you didn't really. You're a fan sitting there watching. But you felt as if you you suffered with this team. You suffered with the fans. You worked for it. And then at the end of the day, you won, man. We actually It's possible to win. And with the Pistons, it felt that way. It felt like that was unfair like life can be unfair they did everything they should have done they won the game and then they still lost the game and lost the series but then they came back next year and they won two in a row so it kind of like all works out in the end in a way but i think that that's why it was so intense that's why the game was that game was great because individually this is why i hate highlights the way highlight culture is now if you looked at each individual shot that Isaiah took in that third quarter, they wouldn't look like the greatest play of all time. They wouldn't make the ESPN top 10 plays of the week. But when you saw in context of what he had been through, he'd already been knocked unconscious twice in the playoffs. He was all beat up. He was a small guy amidst these giants. And yet somehow he got off his back and he found a way to do this incredible thing. And that's like where sports is very, very inspiring. If you want it's, to look at it's a single funny, Rich, that you're from yeah. you're from Chicago. You're obviously a big uh, Bulls fan, and yet the hero of the book, if there is one, is 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 Thomas. And in a way, there's a, and maybe I'm overreading this. I, I sense a degree of nostalgia for that period. And reading between the lines, are you saying that Jordan was really the end of this? I mean, this is the year, of course, that. Um, that Air came out courting a legend, a new movie about Air Jordans. Did Michael ruin it ultimately, this world that you write about in uh, When the Game Was War? Well, I think Michael Jordan was the greatest athlete in American history. Like, And I think Jim Thorpe was a great athlete and Bo Jackson was a great athlete. And, and it wasn't just that he was... He wasn't the greatest athlete. man, was he? No, but who cares? You know... I'm like for a big person of separating the person from the art. This is what I say with people that don't like Isaiah. Like my kids tell me we don't like this artist because he said or did that bad thing. And I'm like, well, if he had instead of made a movie or done a painting, but it invented a vaccine, would you take, you know, that prevented you from getting COVID forever. Would you take the vaccine or would you not take the vaccine? You know? So I feel like, Michael Jordan as a not the nicest person and a guy who at his Hall of Fame speech ran down some of his high school teammates. One is my attitude is ultimately who cares? You know, I mean, he's not out committing crimes. He's just kind of a nasty guy. But secondly, I think that that key, that personality is pretty much 
a part of the deal, man. It's necessary. It's the flip side of the incredible athletic talent, which is if you've been around sports or, and I wrote a book about the Chicago bears, there are some players who seem to play the game happy like magic Johnson, but a lot of players and probably in a, not just sports, but life, they got to get themselves angry. They got to feel personally disrespected. Like they have been taken for granted or treated badly. Like I, I spoke to this guy who played for the Chicago Bears, one of my favorite athletes of all time, Doug Plank, the human missile. And he said to me, before each game, I would tell myself that people on that team did something to me and my family personally. They hurt my family. And now I have to go out like the sheriff in an old movie and get justice. And I think there's a lot of players, Isaiah, Michael, Larry Bird, who had to work themselves up into a kind of anger, personal anger at the other side in order to perform at their best. And one of the things about this is a lot of players, it's really weird, but they only they play better after they've been hurt. Not in spite of being hurt, because of being hurt. And I don't know if it's that they get angry or maybe it's that the pain makes them stop thinking about anything and they just go instinctively. But something about the anger and the pain of it makes them perform better. And I've seen it in youth sports. I've seen it in my own life. So I think that Michael Jordan was very, very typical uh, in that he played angry. And, no, and but, uh, maybe just... I didn't uh, find a question, Rich. Maybe I didn't articulate it correctly. What I meant was not that so much that Jordan wasn't a nice guy, but rather that he represents the beginning of this global... Yeah, no, I know, I know what you meant. I was, I was, one of the reasons why you, seem, you know your 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 picture is so attractive is because these were regional these were cities regional right. media everyone everyone had pride in their in their city and then jordan came along and the whole world became globalized right. i agree with you i was i was giving you an incredibly long sort of probably stupid answer to your question but i was on the way to the answer which is yes he became too big for the game's own good wasn't his fault. Um, just he became an international superstar. And you really see that when he went to the Olympics with the Dream Team and he was mobbed in places by fans that shouldn't have known anything about American basketball, you know? So I think that the game became globalized and, and there's a lot of great things about that, but we lost kind of the small gym, small time regional aspect of it. And now the players, of course, can't do what the players did back then for one reason. They make too much money, there's too much at stake, and they're too much in on camera 24 hours a day. So nobody wants to take a chance and do something stupid and accidentally end their career because they were seen at a bar drinking too much. Or like Dennis Rodman would go to out to bars after the Detroit Pissing Games, not to drink because he didn't drink at that point, just to play pinball and hang out. And I don't think it would even be – the teams wouldn't even allow him to do it anymore, you know. And guys, you can, like you said, fans flying commercial, they were completely ingrained in their community. I used to go to a gym where I grew up, and the Bulls and the Bears both lived out near there because that's where their practice facility was. And next to me at the gym would be, you know, the guys on the Bears working out because that's just where they worked out because they didn't have a facility of their own. And now they're so closed off in these, you know – arenas and there's separate space it's like it's a different group of people and there's a real disconnect between the fans and the teams and of course the players now switch teams every couple of years 
So one, they can't be incredibly nasty to the guys they're playing against because one, they might be playing with them next year. And um, two, nobody wants to get hurt because there's so much money, you know, at stake. And three, as a fan, you don't want to identify too closely because that guy's going to be gone. I mean, Jordan played for the Bulls for years and years and years. So now when I go buy a Bulls jersey and they say, whose name do you, what, whose name do you want on back? I say, put the owner of the team's name on back because that's the only one that's going to be here five years from now. I want this jersey to last.